we got 10 Cloverfield Lane. That, I thought, how can this be at all attached to the colossal monster story that we got from Matt Reeves? It was actually kind of, how would you describe it, Brandon? Or what do you remember reading? They were cousins of each other, right? Oh, the films. The films, not the, there's no... (laughs) Everyone and welcome to episode 36 of Plot Devices, a very special episode because you're here and we're talking Netflix and supernatural things and we'll get to Don't Worry Darling, I know you all want to hear it, we'll get to it, we get to it. I am your host for today, Brandon King, alongside my not-so-worrisome co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing on this special day? So, well, Brandon, I'm paying attention to all things GTA and by GTA, I mean, of course, Golden Trailer Awards, baby. That's are you right. aware of... Are you aware of that? Are you aware of this kind of entity that exists that is the GTA Awards? I don't follow them, but I hear them. Every now and then I'll visit the site and I'll ask myself, you know, oh, like, is this real? And sure enough, it's not just like a parody site. Like there are tickets to go to their uh, maybe commencement ceremony. I don't know what to call it, but maybe their award ceremony. I'll just call it that. And I did look up the tickets because I thought, oh, what the hell? I live in Arizona. It's going to be in California. Maybe it's going to be a small, meager price. It's $200. So maybe I won't go this year. However, I still remain interested. So if any of y'all are appreciators of trailers and how excellently and eloquently they are cut, sliced, diced, and spit out to you, check out the GTA Awards. Uh, Simple Google search will show you all that I'm talking about. They separate them by category and everything and anything. Are you ready to talk news? Uh, Netflix stuff happened literally this morning. Uh, Before full break, I've had a very stacked, busy, overwhelming week. And so I completely forgot about all this dumb stuff until literally last night and i realized i'm gonna have to write up all this one out of the house luckily i was able to gather a lot of it not all of it but a lot of it that i think that you guys might want to be aware of and that we can have pretty good concession with so what did we get from today we actually talked about this last year with a couple other things i forget what they've announced but it's pretty much netflix's giant comic-con d23 their giant hey fans come get excited about things and there are things to get excited about at least for me um, we got the first full trailer, finally, for Enola Holmes 2, starring Millie Bobby Brown and Henry Cavill, reprising their roles from the film in 2020. I cannot wait for it. We also got our first look at Heart of Stone, a new action thriller starring Gal Gadot and Jamie Dornan. Uh, similar in the vein to like Mission Impossible, Jason Bourne, that kind of thing. We just got a first look kind of explaining what it's going to be and things like that. We got the first trailer for They Killed Tyrone, which stars John Boyega and Jamie Foxx uh, as a group of people who discovered this underground laboratory experimenting on Black people in, I believe, the mid-70s. Uh, that sounds fascinating. We got our first look at the Bridgerton spinoff Queen Charlotte, the first look at Slumberland starring Jason Momoa, the first trailer for the long-delayed Manifest Season 4, which I know a couple of you out there who are fans of that, and I hope you're listening to this. You're amazing. Um, first looks at New Season 4, Shadow and Bone Season 2, and Emily in Paris Season 3, a new full scene leaked from uh, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, which comes out in this December. We got behind-the-scenes featurettes for stuff like Extraction 2, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and Kid Cudi's animated weird feature special intergalactic we also got the news that the witcher blood origin was confirmed for a christmas release is adding many drivers to the cast as both a character and the narrator for the show we also found out that witcher season three which we will absolutely be talking about is coming out next summer 2023 so that's uh, definitely gonna be happening and finally for all of you fans of the crown who had feelings about queen elizabeth's death uh, apparently the show will not be affected by the monarch's late death it will still release this november there won't be reshoots it'll still be coming out just as on schedule with all the casting crew that you know and love noah that's a lot already and that's not even all of it um this happens every time we cover a massive conference something like that but 
What about this stood out to you? What movies and shows and series are here? And was there anything that maybe wasn't here that you wanted to learn more about? What is all here? Enola 2. I watched the second trailer. It only motivates me further to check out the first one. No, I'm sorry. Don't berate me. Don't throw you got it. So at me. fun. I have to because I want to ask you, Brandon, in Enola Holmes, is does she often break the fourth wall? Like I see she does that throughout the trailer. So I want to know, is her relationship to the audience a prevalent thing in the first film? Oh, yeah. It's the same director as uh, Fleabag. So he brings the kind of fourth wall gimmicky style to it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Thank you. I'm so happy I know that now. Um, we did get some excellent trailers i would say one a few of my favorites are going to be um the you season four it's not fully a trailer i wouldn't even call it a teaser we just get a date announcement we get the season four official announcement including a roundabout of characters being introduced with their names with their faces and pen badgley narrating all that is to come and to be expected in this fourth season if you're a you fan i don't think we've covered the title on this show but i myself am a fan of that netflix series you and i will be right there at the gates waiting for season four to drop that was exciting news glass onion we mentioned in an episode back which was my quick hit that that was going to be ryan johnson's next feature with the detective benoit blanc uh outside of these there were some surprises i would say a surprise would be Jason Momoa's hilarious look. It's fascinating, but it is hilarious in that new trailer for Slumberland. Do you have expectations? Are you getting a sort of Alice in Wonderland kind of take there with uh, him portraying a Mad Hatter of sorts? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like a lighter Pan's Labyrinth type deal, just the whole makeup that Jason Momoa has going for. I like seeing him do more things like this. I don't need, you know, uber serious Jason Momoa all the time. I like seeing him kind of branch out and be goofy. He's done it before. I can't say I know where, but... He's done it before where he breaks from the typecasted of being the rough, gritty kind of just like protector of sorts that he is often asked to portray. But now he gets an opportunity to be really silly. And I think that that's going to excite the fans of his, I being one of them. Um, I don't always need him to be in this grand epic action adventure where he has to be uh, a brute force. It would be nice to see him more lighthearted here and kind of guiding more of the inner child in all of us. And so uh, I'd love for us to pay attention to Slumberland and see where that really goes once it's released. Another topic of interest is going to be Heart of Stone. I wouldn't call this a full trailer because it's more of a like first look. So it's showing you B footage of the stunts being coordinated. You have several actors talking, speaking on what the story is actually going to do, all while remaining vague as hell. Like they're um, talking about the the scale and stakes of it all. Um, I know Gal Gadot is going to be starring in there, but I really have just big questions on what what, what are we doing here? Um, Because the trailer didn't at least show me that much. Uh, Did we watch the same thing, Brandon? Are we talking about that first look with all of those stunts? Very much so. And the stunts look cool, but I also don't care. I, it might just be the sour taste of the gray man in my mouth where I'm like... Absolutely. Yep, the gray man, I, I was going to say. I don't need Netflix to invest in more red notices and gray mans that are, you know, $150, $200 million of just, you know, grade A beautiful actors doing giant stunt work. I don't need that anymore. Um, I, again, that doesn't speak to Netflix's numbers. They're doing great with those films, but I don't really care about this one. What made your ears really like perk up and what made you go, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And don't say Enola Holmes too. I mean, you can, but I already know that you're right there waiting for it. 
the Enola Holmes two chair is so charming and I love it. Um, I will skip that though because I will absolutely talk about it in a couple of weeks. I'm going to apply for that. Um, the Slumberland trailer was really neat. Um, I like the Shadow and Bone clip that got released. We never talked about that on the show, but I really appreciated that first season. I'm curious to see what they can do next with that. For me though, the behind the scenes of Pinocchio, the work that goes into that movie is, it's always staggering whenever I see behind the scenes for stop motion stuff, but with Guillermo del Toro, who's someone who just hearing him gets to talk, I, again, I could hear him talk about this for hours and hours and then green screens and kind of the different models and everything. There was this whole thing where he has like a giant Pinocchio head next to him. Like, this is what we do when the cricket's on the shoulder. And I'm like, that's super cool. I wouldn't know that. There was something a little creepy shared too. Creepy in the genre. Okay, we're not talking about actual creeps on here. Who do you think we are, huh? Okay, so we are talking Netflix's The Watcher which was teased. It is a Ryan Murphy project. And it was teased initially with a Jennifer Coolidge congrats on her Emmy win. We are clapping for Jennifer Coolidge and her win from the White Lotus season one. It encouraged one of my... And her graduation to White Lotus season two. And a graduation, yes. Oh my gosh, Aubrey. We are going to talk White Lotus, okay? (laughs) But that being said... This The Watcher series was initially teased with Jennifer Coolidge taking on a real estate agent. You can check out the trailer for The Watcher, this new series that's going to star Bobby Cannavale, Naomi Watts, Jennifer Coolidge, as I mentioned. The first two actors are playing a family who move into a new home and all of a sudden they receive letters about someone watching them. And that's kind of all you get out of the trailer. Uh, There is like enough in the trailer to kind of uh, spin your expectations, make you wonder whether this is, um, you know, the community at large placing an attack on them, whether this is someone living like in the walls of their home uh, about to like take harmful action on them. I don't know, but I know it's from Ryan Murphy. I'm a fan of AHS. It's Ryan Murphy and Ian Brennan. Like they know what they're going to do. They have their style. Netflix is absolutely in love with them. I like the cast a lot. I like seeing Jennifer Coolidge get to branch out more after White Lotus. So like, there is something there. I do think there's, you know, really creepy stuff in there, but also it's creepy, not so fun time, and I will not be watching. And it's going to be right before we check out, you know, Barbarian, which I assume is creepy, not so fun time. Oh, you got that right. We were doing a solo review here in just a moment, but we still got more news to present to y'all. In something that I don't think many of us were expecting, if any of us, really. Uh, do you remember 2005's Constantine? I remember 2005's Constantine. I love the character of John Constantine, and I love him in comics. I love the Matt Ryan version of the shows. I just really like the character. And the Keanu Reeves version was not really that character, but it it did win a it did win an audience and won a you know pun intended cult following. And I think for those fans of that movie, you're going to be very happy to hear that we're getting a sequel. Like I think we're actually getting a sequel. Deadline reported last week that Keanu Reeves and director Francis Lawrence will be returning to the project with a script from iRobots writer Akiva Goldsman. The original told a very different version of the character originally created by Alan Moore and Stephen Bissett, a chain-smoking, cynically-driven occultist who makes his living driving away demons from our mortal world. Notably, as I mentioned, Matt Ryan has played the character since 2015 on Arrowverse shows and animated content, things like that, while Jenna Coleman has played a gender-swap version on Netflix's Sandman. While the original didn't blow up box offices or really well critics, it has since developed a really strong cult following among Supernatural DC fans, even sparking a 15-year anniversary panel at Comic-Con a couple of years ago. Additionally, uh, in just comparison, this variety did confirm that two other series adjacent to the John Constantine character, those are not happening anymore. There was a J.J. Abrams developing a Just League Dark series that's apparently not happening anymore, and a Madame Xanadu show being developed by Angela Robinson. Neither of those are happening. They're being pushed on the back burner as of this announcement, seemingly confirmed of because of this announcement. Uh, no release date has been set or production date, but Noah, Keanu is going to be Constantine again. What do you think? 
I think in the in the interest of respecting my man, Constantine, happy bisexual visibility week to all. Constantine is canonically bisexual. Um, I'm sure for DC fans comics, uh, you're going to be more aware of that fact. But yes, LGBTQ superheroes, let's get more content with them. Um, and it better explore that with Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves, you better kiss a man in that new movie. <laughs> I'm absolutely playing. Um, I'm a fan of the original. Rachel Weisz, Tilda Swinton, there are excellent early performances from Hollywood actors that you're still aware of today that you may have witnessed back in 2005 with this movie, Constantine. I am very, I've always been a fan of this, of this lane of superheroes, you know, the maybe like, what do you, how would you generalize them? Like the hell fighters or something like that. Right. I think of Hellboy also where involving demons involving um like religious weapons or religious iconography it draws me in angels like that first movie i know had the mark in my memory to to hold my interest in some of the same genres so i hope uh, that there are listeners out there to relate to that and now 17 years later we are getting a sequel is it late yeah but i mean zombie land came out maybe what like 12 years after the original it's crazy men in black four the list goes on and on and on if reeves had not been attached i would wonder why they were going to approach a sequel um but it must be because reeves's uh commitment to the character or uh I only know that Keanu is going to uh, put his heart into this as he does with all of his uh, latest projects. We can talk John Wick. Um, we can talk Berserker once that releases. But no, Brandon, this is an excellent topic. And I'm so happy that we will be following Constantine uh, and more details to follow. Because here, it's while it's not a lot, it's enough to get the conversation started. As I mentioned, I love the character. I love certain runs. Again, again the Alan Moore stuff originally that I read. I haven't read all of the stuff that I've read. He's a fascinating kind of anti-hero in the best of ways he has all the iconography behind him he has the motivation behind him and you know coming from me i love matt ryan's version of the arrowverse so so much that version is i think far more comic accurate than the one keanu reeves did on screen but that's not to say that version isn't good like i've appreciated that constantine movie the more the years have gone on it's this weird wacky piece of both like dc iconography versus like what 2005 movie studios were trying to make into like big, bold, creative action movies. Do you remember it being a good movie? I didn't see it in theaters. So when I initially saw it on VOD, it was like, this is fine. But then I also saw it most recently, like two years ago for the anniversary. And I was like, wait, this is kind of great. Yeah. Okay. Cause I haven't watched it as of late, but I would be curious as to what a rewatch would do. Uh, but sorry for interrupting. I just, it, it sparked my memory of like, wait, was this a good movie or are we both speaking on something that was kind of like bombed? <laughs> oh, you're, you're totally good. And like, it's one of those things where like in nowadays where I defend a lot of comic material for taking risks and doing things like that, but this feels like a risk, especially nowadays. Like we would never get this nowadays. Ironic that we are now getting this nowadays. So the thing about it is like, I'm glad the fans for what it's worth will get that. I hope people come out in droves to support this kind of story. So I'm really excited for it. And that's not to take away from the J.J. Abrams project that was in the works. I mean, it's a shame that that is no longer like anybody attached is no longer going to be working on that. But we do have J.J. Abrams news coming up. So and frankly, more exciting J.J. Abrams news for some people. 
any of you are fans of the Cloverfield universe, you might be getting more new stuff very soon. Deadline again reports that a fourth installment of the Cloverfield franchise is in fact in development. With J.J. Abrams once again serving as producer, with Babak Anvari, director of the recent George McKay starring I Came By, he's going to direct a movie with a script from Encounter and Humans writer Joe Barton. The franchise has tried expansions in the past few years, including 2016's 10 Cloverfield Lane and 2018's The Cloverfield Paradox, telling different stories in the same universe. The proper sequel has yet to actually been made. Uh, plot details are, of course, under wraps. Paramount has yet to actually confirm the news and no release date has been set. But Noah, I was, I think from our Matt Reeves episode, you're a pretty big fan of Cloverfield. Do you want a proper sequel or, or do you want to see them more go in like weird web directions? Just give me a proper sequel. I mean, I've been paying attention to Cloverfield back when Overlord dropped. And I remember Overlord from, I think it was bad robot i couldn't tell you brandon i have been a fan of cloverfield enough to even follow up on actual news this is pre you know journalism school and me fact checking and finding all these uh you know professional outlets but i was under the impression that overlord maybe with some of you too overlord that movie about uh world war ii exploring a nazi base and understanding that they were uh, genetically altering their soldiers. It, it pretty much is a zombie movie. And I understood that in production or maybe pre-production, it was set up to be a Cloverfield in attached just piece somehow. It was going to be in the Cloverfield universe. And I didn't find out until after I watched the movie and I read up on it that it that idea was scrapped. Like no longer was it going to be attached to Cloverfield at all. So I'm going to stop the conversation there, okay? Then we moved ahead and we got... 10 Cloverfield Lane that I thought, oh, how can this be at all attached to the colossal monster story that we got from Matt Reeves? It wasn't. It was actually kind of how would you describe it, Brandon? Or what do you remember reading? They were cousins of each other, right? Oh, the films, the films, not the, the there's no. <laughs> yes, the films were, I believe, like presented to be after the fact, like cousins of each other. They exist maybe in the same universe, but not like next door. This isn't Cloverfield happening in Manhattan and 10 Cloverfield Lane happening a state over. No, that is not what happened. But then we received Netflix's Cloverfield Paradox. Now that I think was the most heavy swinging of the three, wanting us to uh, welcome in ideas of multiple dimensions, um, tears in like how can i describe that movie simply like there is just a lot i think sci-fi that the film asks you to understand i do love the ending of that movie i think that it actually is very shocking very surprising and very fitting for the monster world at large but ultimately paradox fell flat for me brandon i know we're going to talk about this new announcement but do you have anything to say about 10 cloverfield lane or paradox whether you saw either I don't have that much to say on this other than I thought Tim Cloverfield Lane was great. Um, I love what Dane Trachtenberg did with that movie. It was such a great claustrophobic thrower that just really surprised me at how well-constructed and just engaging it actually was. And two, because I still haven't seen the original Cloverfield, because I still haven't seen Paradox, I can only speak on like what I've heard from fans. And while I'm totally with you and your sympathy of like, I want a direct sequel, I totally get that. We were just talking about, you know, Constantine and those fans. I kind of would love them to take kind of a more broad span approach, like make a universe where like monsters freak out and exist and like just tell weird stories in there. And J.J. Abrams is not the worst guy to do that. I like the team they got behind it. Again, Encounter, the guy who wrote that, that was my biggest pleasant surprise of uh, 2021. So, of course, anything he does, I'm you know totally interested in. But as far as Cloverfield as a whole goes, yeah, go nuts with it. 
so we're getting a new Cloverfield movie. This is this is amazing news. If if you've seen the movie or if my infatuation and like overall enthusiasm of it all throughout this past couple minutes has excited you, then please uh, stay tuned. Uh, we I know for a fact that I will be uh, poking Brandon and saying, hey, Cloverfield stuff, let's talk about Cloverfield. And if I, I doubt I will have the strength to push him into a room to watch the first film, but that's not to say that um, we can't. We can't see what this new film has to offer. After all, we don't know what the threat is going to be and how it's going to be presented to us. We've gotten so far, like I said, a found footage film. We got, Brandon said, a a claustrophobic like basement story. And then the third film, Paradox, actually takes place in space. And, uh, you know, I'll let you run with that. So uh, this is exciting news for any J.J. Abrams fans. And like I said, although he's not attached to that Constantine project anymore, the man will be busy. J.J. Abrams is always busy. We've known this. Let's hop into our quick hits for today. This is a portion that we're bringing back uh, as we usually do. Uh, just a quick uh, one minute to slightly over a minute news topic that we didn't have time to do in a full conversation, but we want to get out to you guys anyways. I will actually start off with mine, if you don't mind, in three, two. So last November, we got the news that Patty Jenkins' Star Wars movie Rogue Squadron was going to be hit with a bunch of delays. She was working on a third Wonder Woman movie as far as a Gal Gadot starring Cleopatra movie, a bunch of other things. While the movie is not officially dead, unfortunately, fans will have to wait a lot longer because Disney just took it off of their official release schedule. That movie was actually expected to start filming this year and then for a Christmas 2023 release date. Obviously, that is not happening anymore. Jenkins hasn't officially commented on the delay, but did say a while back to IGN it would take place during a future era, quote, of the franchise, and, quote, it would take place uh, with influence from the games and books, which a lot of people were expecting from the Rogue Squadron games and novels. This means that aside from Taika Waititi's movie, which is still scheduled to come out in 2025, no new Star Wars film has a release date, and only The Mandalorian and the recently released Andor, all the Disney Plus series, those will have to avoid for fans in time. For me, I'm a little sad about this. I want Star Wars to come back to the big screen at some point, but again, the fact that they got to do what they got to do, I want Jenkins to take this project and really roll with it. She seems super passionate about it, so I can only hope it gets off the ground at some point in time. Thank you for that Star Wars update in your quick hit, Brandon. It is now on over to me. Pressure is on in three, a two, a one. Hello, everybody. I'm talking about James Bond today. I'm paraphrasing from a Variety article from Minori Rivendron. And today I'm discussing the two producers and their interest in recasting Bond, the 007 agent. It will be Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. And they have a conversation that goes as follows. We are looking for a new Bond that will be attached to the character 007 for 10 to 12 years. They do have people in mind, one of which the prominent name of Idris Elba. Yes, I'm talking about Knuckles from Sonic 2. Uh, <laughs> he has previously stated that um, the article shares that when he looks in the mirror, he doesn't see Bond, which is so surprising to say because I'm like, Idris, we look at you and we only see potential. And one of those potentials is a potentially 007. So they're looking for somebody for a 10 to 12 year commitment. They are looking for someone who can evolve with the character of Bond. As they say, Craig's attachment to the character has been able to bring out more emotional uh, capacity for the uh, super spy. So now they're looking for someone who can evolve in a different way and possibly do so for 12 years in the industry. Time over a little bit. No, they were good. Um, I won't ask you who you want to play Bond, but I will ask you, do you think it's a good choice? Do I think this is a good conversation? Yes. I love the idea of recasting Bond and figuring out who can really bring Bond to a new generation. But unfortunately, 
I think the decision's already been made for them. We got Lashana Lynch's 007 character in No Time to Die. And I have the biggest question mark going on in my head as to why she will not pers- like be attached further. But I don't make those big Hollywood decisions. Miss Broccoli and Mr. Wilson do. So I'll leave it to them. We're diving into our movie review portion of today's episode. We are starting off from director Gina Prince-Bythewood. We are talking The Woman King. This is the Viola Davis new picture that Brandon is going to provide a synopsis for now. Gina Prince-Bythewood is back after directing what I think is maybe one of the best action movies so far of the 2020s in The Old Guard. Uh, We talked about her directorial debut with Love and Basketball, which you can go check out on the channel. Uh, now she is back with The Woman King. This is based on the real-life story of the Agoji, which is an all-female sort of pseudo-Amazon group of warriors defending the kingdom of Tahomi, which in terms of uh, modern day is basically Benin. We follow primarily Viola Davis as uh, Naniska, who is the head general of the Agoji. They aren't allowed to have uh, children. They aren't really allowed to act alongside any of the villagers, but they're there to protect their people from those who would do them harm, specifically the Oyo Empire, led by uh, Jimmy Odokoya as uh, General Oba. We follow also Nawi, played by Thuzo Mebedu, if any of you watched the Underground Railroad series on uh, Amazon. She goes on to train with Aniska and the New Warriors, specifically uh, Lashana Lynch, who popped back up in here as Izogi. Uh, we also have Sheila Atim from Bruised as Amenza, and of course, John Boyega, of course, from Star Wars himself, as Gezo, the young king who trusts Aniska to make the decisions that he would never want to make, um, but also trying to protect his own people and make the tough decisions to decide. Basically, let's talk about it, you know, get into the slave trade. Because Dahomey uh, uses the slave trade. They are basically enthralled by the idea of the Europeans coming into their country. They utilize the same means. And Naniska believes there is a better way, uh, palm oil, other just more exports that aren't, you know, enslaving people. And that's kind of the behind the scenes conflict in the movie. But the real meat of the story is the warriors training, trying to protect their people from invasion and whatever threats may loom themselves. Noah, I love the idea behind the story. The cast is superb. Were you also as into this? I am reading the tagline now and it's a warrior becomes a legend. And although you may imagine that that pertains to Viola Davis, I actually think it's more, uh, it's more appropriate to say that that belongs to Naui. Uh, Naui is the character you said, of course, who joins the, uh, the militant squad of the Dahomey because she refuses to take a man who will beat her into submission or uh, is just overall like not, not an appropriate partner for her that has been like selected by her family. I was happy that we got a story of sisterhood that was all about um, where the women of the Dahomey are on the ground and they're the ones kind of like at the front lines of the attacks. They do still have um, firearms, but it was like all of the male warriors were actually in the back holding the firearms. There was just an interesting dynamic there in how that they attack their attacks, their, the action. This is, unsurprisingly from the same director as the old guard i think that this action hits hard and hits heavy does surprise me because there is not a there's not more than a drop of blood shown throughout the movie which i'm curious to know if you have any notes on because watching this i was kind of surprised that there was the lack of blood um but the movie starts out with naniska leading a surprise attack on this neighboring camp who have taken prisoners and have been holding them there. And then we understand that the Agoji is made up of women who have been either like brought in from the surrounding kingdom um, who commit their lives to this mission, to this position, uh, or they've actually been 
taken captive from other camps and have been asked to put themselves through this ringer of training and of committing themselves to their new king and then seeing if they are able to show out in front of him because if they I don't know if it's exactly if they aren't, then then they're committed to like the slave trade business. But it is a note that if they don't show out in those competitions, I guess, how, how can you call them? Uh, graduation. Help me, Brandon. Basically, basically, the graduation program, like everyone okay. has to go through a certain program and do the thing and prove to themselves that they are strong, but that they're also capable of being part of a team. Yes. And that is something that now we immediately commits herself to because of, I think just her overall as a character, she is headstrong. She is stubborn. And Naniska realizes that early on and immediately you get the sense that there is going to be an important dynamic between the two. It wasn't expected. It is a very significant part of this story. Uh, Brandon, how did you feel the balance was between focusing on Naui as this up and coming warrior coming from, you know, a life of little to no action because she is not a fighter prior to joining the Ogoji and now being thrust to kind of like one of the top spots vying for the attention of her peers and for her superiors. How did you feel that was balanced with the story of the woman King who is Viola Davis's character or what she would become as Naniska? I love the parallels they make between Naniska and Naui. Even initially, I think both of their story arcs have such weight and diversity and interest to them. Like Naniska is the strongest of the strong. Like she is, you know, basically in the, she basically the king in her pocket. And we haven't mentioned, but John Boyega is quite good in this. But Viola Davis, we always knew she could hold her poise and hold her strength, but just the physical mentality about it. I've never seen a role quite like this from her. And then Nawi, who is already, you know, as we see, she believes herself to be broken. She believes herself to be, you know, worthless that society doesn't want. And she has to build herself back up. And the way the film intertwines their storylines is such a difficult thing because I think you could either go about it as like Naniska and Sheila team and Lashana Lynch's character as like the kind of core like black ops team and their kind of camaraderie, or you could go like the young gun kind of figure uh, in that sense with Nawi. And I think having to combine them both is so difficult. And I give them really great credit for, especially in the first half, I was never lost and I was never bored with either of them. Like I just truly wanted both of them to succeed as much as they did. Davis, you've seen in Widows or in um, yeah, How to Widows, Get Away, How to Get Away with Murder. Um, I'm sure there's another one in there that I'm not mentioning, but she just holds on to her strength and still tapping into the trauma when she needs to, uh, the trauma of her characters so well. And here she does have heavy trauma that she that becomes resurfaced because of this relationship growing between her and this prominent new protege in Naui because. Uh, now he wants to show herself as the strongest and as a as, as a person with the potential to become as great as uh, the warriors that fight alongside the Okoji, um, which she does in a very, I would say, familiar style of uh, go through the training. She has a mentor. There's a good amount of Top Gun in this. Is this film cliche? Absolutely. Did you love watching it? I think it's a theatrical movie. I, I think watching it, I was, I was so engrossed by Naui's journey from this, um, this young, not recognized, untrained warrior. She has the warrior's mindset and seeing how that can develop throughout the story based on the mentors and based on the sisterhood that surrounded her. Unfortunately, they give her a love interest and it is not a same sex love interest. Brandon, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah. 
we need to talk about some of the things in this movie. But I do want to bring up a couple more good things, both like I right, want to right, right. quickly mention I want to quickly Danny Hernandez, who is the stunt coordinator, uh, stunt coordinator for this, he does a great job at giving every woman in this cast their strengths. Like every single one of their fighting styles becomes super different. Even Nawi's, like she gets to use like her own kind of small features against her opponents. Like there's this great moment where I think it's oh god, I think it's the initial training montage where she's going up against some of the guys and she like flips like does a scissor kick around and I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Yo, you, I have the impression that like. Some of the excitement, some of the wow that I got from all of the uh, Marvel pictures involving Black Widow, where she just had that sense of um, like control. She, she's sporadic. She she does have control in all of her moves, and everything is about like manipulating, using your opponent's weight against them, no matter the size of you as as their. Um, as the fighter against them. That's exactly how Naoi fights. That's exactly how a lot of the Ogoje fight. And watching it, I was just like, I was in, I was wowed because um, Naniska is more of the brute force. She does have a heavy looking sword that she carries around with her. That um, it's less of a sword, more of like a giant cleaver, honestly. Uh, she just collects heads with it. But that's more of her fighting style while everyone else is uh, like nimble figured and able to just maneuver around their opponent in ways that I think we don't get from, we in ways that we do not get from action movies we've seen recently. And I think that's also accentuated by the costumes. Uh, Gersha Phillips is the costume designer on this, and she does such great work. I, I love the actual outfits that the uh, the Adoji actually wear, the kind of like blue and red kind of skirt tunic looking things. I love those. I love just the makeup around it. Again, that's a different part of Basil. But I love just the distinctive looks that they give to every character, despite the fact that, yes, they are part of one team. They are part of one like homogenous goal, but they all have individuality to them, individual strengths, and all of those things come through, even though the characters in the movie have to rectify those things. There's parts... There's conflicts within the cast of like the idea of, oh, you know, you're going off and doing this thing on your own. But if you do that, we don't become the unified force that can take down the Europeans. You have a large screen in front of you where you are celebrating the the force that it that comes with all of these women working together or all of these warriors working together who happen to be women. And yes, sisterhood is a very pronounced in those training stages for Naoi. Brandon, I beat the point and I'm going to do it again. I just think that maybe it's rooted in history. There are some parts of this that are, I'm sure we will get into that discussion, but involving Naoi and presenting a love interest just did not make sense to me for it to then steer clear of like this. For me, it like now deters from these, these very um, woman focused and uh, sisterhood ties and now going straight towards like, the colonizer, the man who approaches and is so handsome. It's like the John, uh, what is it? It's like the Pocahontas and then the John, John Smith. John Smith. So that's, that's immediately what I got. Now, was he handsome? <laughs> I'm not going to say, but me and my friend are like giggling to each other because yeah, the man's good looking. Uh, I don't have the actor's name in front of me, but just those scenes did fall to the tropes of, I'm falling for the outsider, although I'm supposed to be committed to this, like this uh, goal of protection and uh, strength in solidarity with my sisters. How did you feel about that, Brandon? By the way, that's Jordan Bolger as Malik, who is the love interest in Ali in there. Um, I will admit, as much as I do really like this movie, it disappointed me because the second half is not nearly as consistent to me uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, just because for the first half of the movie, the Oyo are such clear threats. Like, uh, Oba, I think is yeah. 
General Oba is such a main force of a villain in there, and Jimmy Odekoye does such a great work in there, just making him slimy and despicable in all of his own means. But there's also backstory in there, and just a great story. And then the Europeans come into fray. And once that comes into picture, it takes the movie in a direction that I was expecting it to go to. But I remember at a certain point in the first half going like, okay, I thought there was like European slave traders in there. I thought that was kind of the point of this. And then they do. And it's interesting and it's there. But I couldn't help but also feel like this is diluting the message of your movie for one thing. It's also, I hate to say, but like Jordan Bolger and Dusan Babedu don't have great chemistry. They're fine. And like, I think Malik's character, they kind of get out of the white savior stereotype by having him be uh, half black as well, like coming back to his- Of mixed race, yes. Mixed race, yeah. So like, they bring that into the fray and that's kind of interesting, but they don't give them as much of a character to do that. It's much more focused on um, Hero Finds Tiffin as the other Spaniard who comes into play, uh, which I find very confusing. He's the least interesting of them, but whatever. But again, it brings to mind just points that as the second half of the movie goes on, it loses the focus and the grip on the audience, at least for me as an audience member, that I was really just that I was really just enthralled with. In the middle, when they do start presenting the slave trade enterprise that appears, um, what I do like from this film is Naniska's character wanting to shift from selling people as a as a product and more so the natural resources that are that they are able to uh, produce off of the land. And that I think is her goal for the kingdom. While Gezo also has another uh, person in his ear, one of his many wives, I wanted to just briefly mention that because of Naniska's interest to present alternate methods of trade, I found that to be more inspiring for her as a hero to root for. And Brandon, we have a whole scene. It's a wonderful scene at nightfall with Naoi's character and Izogi who talk about the concept of having the the king and then the woman king being of the same position. Like you cannot have one without the other. Um, I am not, I'm forgetting now like the names. I think it's related to like maybe the mythology, like the gods, but- The two gods I'm forgetting the name of, I apologize. Oh, fine. But when we received that conversation, I thought, oh, my goodness, like, yes, I would love to see them both elevated and using their influence as such. And that discussion of how they can end up on top of this uh, relationship with the Europeans was great, but it just lasted for that scene. Like, I I wanted more of Naniska being that woman king. But unfortunately, this is a this is not a story of her position and reign, I guess. This is more so of her how she was elevated to that position, like her journey upwards to there, along with a journey like internally as well, as she is facing trauma with having been captured in the past, having been subjected to uh, sexual assault, like countless acts um, against her that you'll experience in the movie from characters alongside Oba Ade, who is the, the character, the general that we said who was working hand in hand with the Europeans. Um, that goes into like a, a side plot involving her having a child, her having to give the child up, and we go down that lane, and I have thoughts. I will simply say that I think Davis, as a performer, is able to convey so much in the regret, but also the complex pride that she feels in being able to live the life she does. I shouldn't really like where that art goes, but I'll admit, I actually kind of felt really compelling. I can't say that I felt the same way, but I will say that... To, to some, this will be a movie that that hits those emotional nails on the head and gets you really 
in the shoes of Davis's character, especially um, she she hasn't she has time spent on her. But I, I did really want more. I was expecting Naniska to be the spotlight of this. Not that not that now we being focused is it takes from the excitement at all. I, I would like to be on the ground with this uh, smaller warrior who I thought was going to be like like huge, uh, almost brute like by the end of it through her training. But no, she, like her size is of no uh, pitfall to her capacity. This is a good point for us to wrap with our ratings discussion. Brandon, are you ready for ratings? For me, this is pretty solid eight and a half out of 10. I really had a lot of fun with this. The action is spectacular. I'm convinced that Gina Prince-Bythewood at this point in her career really can't do much wrong. Uh, the cast across the board are fantastic. The characters are easy to root for. The story has a lot of nuance to it. Not all of it works. If you look at the historical context, there's a lot of messy stuff in there and I get it. But I think as far as just a story that speaks to the truth of community and sisterhood and the idea of defeating oppression wherever it stands, it's got that kind of rootability that general audiences thankfully have been really rooting for. It's been doing very well at the boxes of it so far, but I really hope this becomes a kind of cultural touchstone of blockbuster filmmaking. I think in terms of between this, everything, everywhere, all at once, and Top Gun, we're seeing a really great year for blockbuster cinema when it really tries to be. I really liked a lot of this. The second half drags a lot. It really does. It takes some plot points I don't really care for, but the first half is more than enough and the ending more than makes up for it. I'm going to give this a six and a half out of 10. This movie, I think, is it starts very strong and it, it gives me the impression that I will watch a, a woman king um, own her own right and own her mili- her military squad and go on to bring about change in her kingdom for the better. Um it loses that and that's okay. It still keeps me invested. It still keeps me excited for the journey that I am now on, which is all, all surrounding Naui and um, her progression as a fighter. There are relationships that I had wished were explored alternately or better yet, just like um, just more deeply. But overall, I think that this is actually absolutely like a production. Um, you're talking sound. We didn't really talk about music, but I will say that the music carries out um, the emotional beats very well. Uh, action. This I will, this is a movie I will probably go back to the action scenes for because it just, like I said, <laughs> looks so just rapid, so violent without showing blood. Boo, I wanted to see blood. Um, but regardless of it not being graphic, you still get the impression that these are ferocious, ferocious warriors, all led by um, their their respected leader in Viola Davis. And I would recommend you check this out in theaters as it does have that kind of grand experience to it all. But outside of that, I think that the story does kind of lose itself and there are familiar scenes to expect as you're watching it. So and with that, we're going to move on to another solo review. We're back in Horror World this week with a movie that I have heard pretty much only great things across the board for and a movie that I know very little about. Barbarian is in theaters right now. I'm sure it'll be on VOD, hopefully sometime soon. Noah, I know that everyone says don't explain what this movie is and that you need to go in blind. Can you explain anything about this movie before you get into it? Of course I can. I mean, as much as I love to just dive head on blind into a horror movie, especially one with like promotional material as like vague as Barbarian has been, all you know, if you've been paying attention, is that the actors include Georgina Campbell playing a character Tess, Bill Skarsgård, Justin Long, and... Those are the three big ones you really need to know to go into this. Um, I will share that this is a story about a woman. Her name is Tess, played by Campbell, arriving late in the night 
to a Airbnb where she is going to take up residence for the weekend for a gig in the city. And she sees that there is a man already staying there. He actually answers the door and the two have a sort of back and forth of, were you supposed to stay here? Was I supposed to stay here? What's going on here? Uh, Bill Skarsgård plays the man. His name is Keith. And the two are getting to know each other. There is a storm. So Keith invites Tess in so that Tess can become, uh, can collect herself. This is not a city that she's familiar with. So uh, they at least are off to a good start. Um, at the discussion of who should get the bedroom, because the the question comes up of why would, you know, why would a woman coming in the middle of the night and realizing that a man is staying in her Airbnb, why, how could she feel safe in that scenario? She couldn't. It'd be completely different if a man was going in the middle of the night and approached a house that a woman had already been inhabiting. She wouldn't even have let him in. She would have thought murderer. But because she has to, Tess uh, does like, does take the opportunity and like takes the risk actually to stay with Keith. Um, and when they both turn in for the night, you know, they do have some discussions that remove sort of the hostility that lives looming in the air. But at night, the locked door to Tess's bedrooms open. Keith is found sleeping on the couch. There is something afoot and we don't exactly know what. So um, next morning, I believe Keith is out of the picture. Tess goes and explores the basement and she pulls a rope and unlocks a hidden room. She finds things and I will leave that to mystery. But then she opens up another door in the basement only to find a horror scene like no other. Why does he do this? He goes down there. Everyone else is like, okay, you've known him for a day. What are you doing? After a moment of silence from Keith, Keith is just gone. She goes downstairs and she searches for him. When Tess goes down there again, trying not to lock herself in there, <laughs> she hears Keith deep, 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 down in that chamber screaming for help so what can she do run that's exactly what she could do honestly it's it's hilarious it is hilarious it is terrifying it brings out some of the best of like the extremities of, of emotion when it comes to um like i said finding it funny finding it like terrifying um thrilling but this film is told in chapters or i would say not chapters this film is told in bits so we get that first bit with Tess and Keith. And then we cut to an entirely different character. His name is AJ, played by Justin Long. And he is involved with a uh, an accusation that is being pinned against him that is that he has been involved with a co-star after like signing this deal together to work on a TV show. And she is accusing him of sexually assaulting her. And he has done that. And so he plays a character that is completely arrogant. Now he is involved uh, in the journey to the underspace. That's all. That's all I can really share. Okay. Um, this film has some flashbacks. That's that tell still you about a lot. The, the film has some flashbacks that tell you about the history of the house. Um, what you're going to get here, like I said, is um, the several moments of claustrophobia. Um, it is graphic. This is a film that is not scared to show blood. This is a film that has you rooting for a character worth rooting for and also feeling so jolted whenever something bad happens to them, not only by the threat that looms down there, but also from the characters that surround her. Um, I think that this film is being compared, I've heard in circles, to Malignant. And I think that the reason why is because of how shocking and unexpected the twist of events in Malignant turned out to be. So 
this is a this is a great horror film. I was so happy to watch it. And I was so happy that I was able to talk about it finally on the pod. I believe it is still in theaters and you could probably still check it out. But if not, um, we'll be sharing, I hope, um, when this goes on VOD or some kind of platform for you to experience, it is worth the thrill, okay? At an hour and 42 minutes, this is absolutely an easy picture to pick up and watch. I do think it is too scary for you, Brandon, so I would not recommend you check it out. However, for the horror fans that listen in, uh, this is definitely one of my wrecks. So for my rating on Barbarian, I'm going to give Barbarian a... And I didn't rate Malignant, so I, I, I want to maybe do a rewatch and see what I would give that. But I think Barbarian tells a great horror story in two pieces and in the middle, it just distracts you for a little too long. Um, this is going to stand at a 7 out of 10 for me. And the reasons why is as follows. This claustrophobic nightmare, it has a chaos of an actual dream. It, 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 it leans the audience towards questioning how exactly these things follow each other. But you're having a hell of a good time the entire ride. And uh, <laughs> I was very impressed to get... Uh, performance from Georgina Campbell, who has previously been in Black Mirror's episode, Hang the DJ, which I sing praises about. I was so happy to see her in the horror space. I only hope that she can do more. And this was directed and written by Zach Kreger. That's going to wrap our discussion or the solo discussion on Barbarian. We are now transitioning over to Don't Worry Darlings. We teased it a couple episodes back, but now we are doing the full review, this time joined by a former guest on the pod for the spoiler review of The Batman. It is Danielle Bokenkamp. Danielle, how are you doing today? Are you excited to talk about this movie? I have been excited to talk about this movie since it was announced. I'm doing great. I hope you guys are also doing great. We absolutely are. So before we start tearing into this movie, tearing into reality, wink, wink, hmm, Brandon, let's toss over to you. Let's get a synopsis. Let's figure out what the hell this movie is about. And we will start just, like I said, going right into it. Stop saying things. We need to stop saying things. Uh, don't worry, darling. This is the latest from Olivia Wilde following up the wildly successful and critically acclaimed book smart, which was in my top 10 of the year. I absolutely stand by it. It's fantastic. And everyone had their eyes on this movie, too. And Premiered at a Venice this past, literally this past month, got a lot of mixed reception. All of the behind-the-scenes drama that we'll, that we'll probably get into. We follow Florence Pugh and Harry Styles in one of his first major leady, uh, leading acting debuts outside of uh, Dunkirk and Eternals uh, as Alice and Jack Chambers, a seemingly idyllic uh, 50s-style, seemingly uh, housewife, and, housewife and house husband. Uh, he, of course, goes to work every day, you know, in the Mad Men-style suits and the old-school convertible. She stays home to cook and clean and just, you know, be the housewife that he, she's meant to be. She hangs out with Olivia Wilde herself, who plays Bunny, who's one of her best friends, alongside a couple of the other uh, wives here and there. You also have Nick Kroll in there as uh, Olivia Wilde's husband, and Chris Pine as Frank, the sort of leader of the community they call Victory, which is a seemingly isolated community out in the desert. One day, uh, Alice goes out and finds her friend, uh, put by Kiki Lane in basically a complete mental breakdown. Uh, she's been having a lot of marital troubles, seemingly a lot more than that. And then something happens. And that's something pretty much snaps something within Alice. She starts having these hallucinations and something seems to be going on between herself, her husband, and just the entire town of Victory at large. And Chris Pine's character seems to be at the entire heart of it. That is all we can say right now. We will be getting into spoilers in just a few minutes, but we want to get just a pretty clear cut vision of the movie first. Danielle, over to you. Uh, what did you think about the marketing going into it? And did this live up to any of the mysterious expectations it was offering? 
when I first saw the trailer, I was like, this movie looks fantastic. Like, it, you know, it looks super cool. I'm so excited. And then, of course, all of the drama started happening. There was stuff at Venice Film Festival. And then it got the bad ratings. And then I was like, okay, now I'm a little bit concerned that this will not be a good movie. Um, and of course, there was also questions about Harry, because although he has acted before, never in a role this big, and never alongside Florence Pugh. So... There was concerns about maybe he wasn't the best person for the role. I honestly really loved this movie. I think there was a lot that could have been done better, but overall it exceeded my expectations, maybe because I went in thinking it was going to be bad. I don't know, but I genuinely really liked it. And I think that um, it's not a perfect movie, but I think it's a really good movie. The mixed reception in Venice is only the tip of the iceberg for mm. what I would experience from Don't Worry, Darling. Danielle, I cannot wait to have deferring opinions on this Pew Styles wild feature that we got. Um, Nick Kroll is also in this movie, and I have big questions as to why he was underutilized along with Gemma Chan, but we will probably get into that. I would say walking out the theater, what's on my face? I kind of have a confused look. You know, the movie did what it had to do to stir the pot of mystery, have me questioning what is really going on in the town of victory. There is one big question mark part of this community, and that is the destination that all of the husbands drive to for their job every day. One thing the community asks of its married families is that the husbands leave their community to go work at this, what do they call it? Their base facility, let's just call it that. But none of the wives are really allowed any information outside of it's for, it's not weapons testing, but can somebody help progressive me here? materials. It is for progressive material. And so that's all we even are allowed to know as an audience. So once Pew starts to get closer and closer to that question mark is I think when this story has its fastest moving like parts of its story. Um, I hope that that made sense. You know, I am trying to steer clear of spoilers if my intro didn't. Uh, eh, I'm just going to take that away. Um, but the shining moments for me were when we were getting closer and closer to what that looming mystery was that was floating over everyone's head. Um, although the parts in between, I did enjoy seeing the kind of fractured mind of Pew's character, Alice, as she's asked to stay home and repeat the same task day in and day out some of which are like un severely underappreciated because she will spend hours preparing ham, uh, three course meals, a drink alongside every meal, every portion. And her husband comes home and they just decide to make sweet love on top of the table, knocking all of those fine dishes off. And I ask myself, oh my gosh, all of the food was wasted. Um, Brandon, what can you speak on for your early reactions for this film? There is a point to be made about that. Like there is this sense of like, wild uh there's a sense of like wild virality to the whole movie that kind of goes through like especially the first third i don't remember if we talked about the first trailer uh when it first dropped but i remember being fascinated at the kind of idea of okay so olivia wilde you know comes to her director or debut makes book smart this really sharp freaking hilarious you know uh youth and revolt style comedy and then goes you know full-blown twilight zone stepper wives and you know whatever this movie was going to be. And I was fascinated. And even though, you know, all the drama coming out and, you know, the Shia LaBeouf element to all of it, I was still fascinated to see what could come about. And I think for about two thirds of the movie, I was going, okay, this is fine. This is working. Uh, I think as a mystery, it's pretty effective. 
I don't quite think it nails the last third, but we will get into it. But I think for what it's trying to do, I do think there's absolute there's absolutely substance to it. There's absolutely a worth to staying with the characters, specifically with Florence Pugh, who I think anchors the entire movie beyond. And I don't mean to like stifle any uh, Olivia Olivia Pugh. I don't mean to stifle any of Olivia Wilde's directing or you know Katie Silverman's writing or anything like that. And I do have criticism of those, but I think Florence Pugh finds the best balance of the over-emotionality, the sense of POV character involved, the sense of actual love and relationship with the Harry Styles character, that perfect combination of just keeping you invested. You can argue she's overacting at a couple of moments, but I think that's more in line with the direction and kind of the, again, the overactivity and the kind of heightened sense of awe and awareness of the movie is trying to go. I will also say it's freaking glorious to look at. Like Matthew Liebertine, I know he's been getting his flowers and absolutely, you know, duly work. Every shot of this movie is just dripping with like, southern california sunlight and like piercing veils of color in the background and it just looks great to look at even even the times where it doesn't really even the times where it does go away from that initial kind of visual component i just still had every little piece of detail i was like oh what's that house doing there oh what's that guy doing in the background like there's such a great sense of everything in its place that absolutely ties into the movie again it doesn't totally work and we will get into it but i i wound up enjoying parts of it more than i thought i would you mentioned Stepford Wives, and I want to bring up now what other influences that you might have seen uh, communicated through Wilde's vision, especially because she is the director here. I thought that she actually was the writer as well, but no, this is a uh, a film that she is um, credited as the director for. Of course, she's in it as well. She's Bunny, Alice's best friend. Um, while I was watching it, I have the same appreciation for how stylized it was like i loved um how everything was super uh the the women were all dressed in, like the monochromatic outfits very pinup style and it just looks like it just looks so much fun to be a part of of course um we don't know the circumstances as to why they're um adorned this way or why they're dressed this way the film has a nice eeriness to it because you're aware of what it looks like it could be possibly 60s or or something like that but you're you absolutely don't know what's going on in the world outside of victory i honestly had early thoughts of this is possibly like tremors eight you know like maybe there's giant worms outside of the community and i'm being serious outside of the community of victory because that's what all the rumbling is underneath the city we should note there is rumbling beneath the city at times while the wives are at home and the husbands are away at work um but i was thinking tremors i was thinking um honestly black mirror kind of too one thing that i thought was really cool and i'll try to explain this without spoiling it but you know florence Pugh is always like dressed and she's always dressed differently than the other wives and her hair is always different too. And her hair is actually more of like a 60s style, um, which I know at first when um, pictures were coming out, some people were saying like, oh, that's because she's the main girl trying to make her look different, which is fair. Having seen the movie, as spoiler free as possible, I think that part of it also was to show her being out of place. And I'll leave it at that but I thought that that was brilliant. Um, I thought that it was cool before I watched the movie, but after having seen it, I was like, okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I think that it's really cool. I had the criticism like, oh, you know, sometimes it's overacting, but I think it also just ties into the element of rising to a boiling point, like you said. And that's one of the things that I think the film kind of falters a little bit in. I don't think the breadcrumbs are left as detailed as they probably should be. We don't really see a ton of cracks in the wall until a thing happens. And I felt that when that thing happens, the movie kind of goes from a really nice kind of, I won't say nice, it's, you know, over two hours, but like a really stable kind of pacing to just let's go for it. Like just do the thing and get the movie over with. And I kind of felt like 
the more the more I paid attention to that last third, the more that I kind of felt you could have yeah, you could have emphasized some of this earlier. You could have made some of it more practical earlier and still kept it within the realm of Alice's discovery because the whole point of it is that we're supposed to be as enraptured by and as terrified of the concept of the unknown and the mystery of it as Alice is. And I never really felt that from a writing perspective. I only felt that from her performance. Is Alice in Wonderland? We may never know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, speaking on uh, additional performances, while... Alice is asked, while Florence Pugh is asked to portray this woman who is uh, being accused of being, maybe accused isn't the right word, but the community is painting a picture at large that she is losing her mind all the same as the the, the outspoken woman before her who was uh, Kiki Lane as, as Margaret, who we believe or we're told throughout the story has had a child, but then went out into the desert. Something happened out there in the desert. She was, uh, they mentioned that she might've had uh, delusions or, or or what have you. And then her son was taken away. And that is why she now sits with herself in a sort of like dis- disconnected, detached mindset. And the other women look at her as if she's just someone different and she doesn't belong with the community anymore. So now when Alice has those same kind of breaks from reality, you know, she sees reflections and mirrors that are not of her, or they don't sync up with what she's doing. Um, eggs are delivered to her, eggs that come from victory and they're hollow um, while she's cleaning houses. Like you get the whole, like the house as a character. Can I say that much because of the window pane scene? You know, if Alice believes that she is losing her mind, it doesn't matter to these people who are all set on just believing that she's crazy. That was expressed, I thought, really thoroughly and really like effectively. And even to the point of at one point she blacks out because she reaches a location that she wasn't supposed to go to and she ends up back at home. And then uh, Harry Styles' character comes home to prepare dinner and wake her up. His name is Jack Chambers. Jack is really just not believing her. It's like it's a it's the familiar scene, right, where the woman professes that she has gone through this experience and her husband just can't believe he still cannot believe her. And so I wanted to stay on Jack just for a moment. Danielle, how did you appreciate, receive, welcome in Harry Styles in this film? This is my moment. So yeah, I am a One Direction super fan, Harry Styles super fan. So obviously I was very excited to see this movie, but I never expected Harry to be as good of an actor as Florence Pugh. I just think that that is unfair to have that expectation. I never thought that. And I still don't think that. I don't think he was as good as Florence Pugh in this movie. I do think that he was a lot better than people were giving him credit for. I will admit there were some scenes where I maybe would have liked to see a little bit more. I think that he gave what he needed to give. I think he conveyed what was necessary, but I do think that he could have taken it a little bit more over the top in some scenes. I do wonder how much of that was intentional because his character is kind of trying to be calm and, you know, trying to reassure um, Alice if maybe that was also part of it. Like he was trying to not overreact. Maybe it's hard to say. I do think there are some scenes where he really shines, especially like the one in the car. I think he was really great there. I think that his best scene is the one where after Alice blacks out, he just gets to be a doting husband because Harry is very funny and charming in real life. And I think that really shows through. I think he was really funny in that scene. He was very cute in that scene. Like I really liked that one. So while I don't think that he is at the level of Florence or like Chris Pine or Olivia Wilde, like any of the other like supporting people who, um, 
who really got a lot to do in this movie. I don't think that he was bad. And I do think that people saying that he was bad, I don't agree with them. I, I think that he was like, could have been better. He was pretty good. I had also heard that, you know, oh, he's unwatchable or he's complete low, low charisma. First of all, it's Harry Styles. He is full of charisma. He's overflowing with it. Um, if you want to say anything about him. I completely agree that he's not in Florence Pugh's wheelhouse. Like she is acting her ass off and he is trying to give a performance. And there is a very big difference. And I completely felt that, especially as the film goes on. Like initially, when we see the two of them together, there is, again, this, at least initially, there's a palpable sense of electricity between them. And then as the movie goes forward, maybe it's the point, maybe it's not, but I felt that really detached. And I think it's maybe because of him. It might be because of Olivia Wilde, maybe because of just how the writing goes. I want to make a comparison that I thought of literally just now. Like, the more I think about it in just this moment, the more I think it might be apt. Is Harry Styles Hayden Christensen? Think about where I'm going with this. That rocked my world. <laughs> please, t- please help me. Help us. Yes, of course. Um, no, because my point about it, Hayden Christensen is because we grew up with the prequels. We know the narrative behind Ingrid's and that, oh, he was a terrible actor. And then 10 years later, we're like, no, he was actually just giving bad direction. And he was, you know, trying and just giving good performances. And my point about that is I found a similar vein, not the exact same, but a similar idea of Harry's performance in this to Hayden Christensen's in Revenge of the Sith, where I think at points, Hayden Christensen is giving a powerhouse, tremendous, wholly lived in performance. And at other times, he's reading dialogue. And I kind of felt the same way about Harry, where... He can't necessarily handle the dialogue being given to him, albeit that's because of the writing. And I think there's a lot of just kind of miscommunication where the writing needs to go about that. But I think just as an actor, he still needs to learn that. I mean, the whole point of Dunkirk was that it was so visceral and it was so lived in. I think he had that idea to bring you in just by facial expressions and movements alone. Yeah, it's not a bad performance, but it's a misused performance. It's an underutilized performance. And it's a performance that I think undermines the benefits of what that actor can bring to the role because of a bad writing. Jack's character really does have, I think, two, I think two moments for me where I think I get the most from Styles, or at least the opportunity is there for me to get the most from Styles. And that is Frank, played by Chris Pine, is the leader of victory. He is the the man with the plan. He's on all of their radio, all of their uh, media, and he's really the one to set the standard for what the, their mission is there. They have this ceremony where Frank promotes Jack Chambers to an elevated position from wherever he was before. And it's kind of hectic. Like it's messy because it's a cacophony of music and pew in the background and, and actually a separate room, like having a, having an episode and while or bunny is there consoling her. And I felt like we had an opportunity there to get a overjoyous Jack at this opportunity to be greater than he was. And I'm I'm not sure if I really got that from Styles' performance. They did cut to his his dancing, and I and I'm kind of putting up quotes because they're following like this kind of uh, swing. I, can I call it swing dancing? He's not he's, basically he, honestly. It's it's very like we say stylized. Um, okay, and then the second moment is going to be when Jack cracks. When Jack has a moment of just explosiveness toward Alice because she is not fitting into this perfect picture that he has always imagined their life to fit. And for me, that crack was intended to be a moment of unraveling. And instead it was more of like a 180 shift immediately. 
I think much like the husbands in the community of victory, when they leave for work, it is time for us to venture into uncharted territory. And that is spoiler land, baby. We are talking spoilers now for don't worry, darling. This is your warning to skip ahead. If you don't want to hear about spoilers from this movie, there will be a number in the timestamps below. Go to it. You just want the ratings. That is all the warning we will give you. Danielle spoilers included. Let's talk about the ending of this film. The situation is essentially that Harry Styles is an incel. And uh, Frank, there's no better way to say that. He's an incel. Um, And so basically, this is, I'm assuming, in like 2022, um, Florence, we find out that Florence, um, or sorry, Alice, that her character is actually a surgeon. And again, that Harry's character, you know, he can't get a job. He feels like he can't provide. And he also feels like his wife, I guess I'm just assuming that they're married, but you know, his partner can't give him. They don't ever say, we know that they're married in victory. We don't know that they're married in real life. So interesting. I'm just assuming, but um, anyways, yeah. So his partner can't give him the attention that he wants because she's having to work a lot because she's a surgeon to try to make ends meet. He can't get a job. I think all of these things lead him to um, Frank who is talking about this simulation, this technology that um, allows you to enter victory. So we find out that this is all a simulation. And what he did was he got his, he got Alice into this simulation and she's there 24 seven. He comes in after work and he joins her there. So when they're exiting, that's what they're doing. They're exiting the simulation and then they come back and be with their wives. So she's not the only wife who's there against her will. Um, and yeah, it, she just kind of has a breaking point because she's like, he, he thinks that he has brought them to this perfect life. He says like, you know, why don't you want to just be perfect with me in here? But she says, you took my life. That was not your choice to make. I think it brings in some really interesting conversations about consent, about the way that women are viewed and treated, not just in 1950, but today. Um, so yeah, I'll leave it to you guys to talk about how you feel about that, but that's basically what happened. What was your reaction on a scale of O to O? Oh, I mean, I wasn't yeah. expecting a simulation kind of thing. Also, as I've said, I'm a big fan of Harry. He's very charming. He's very attractive. So seeing him like that as just this incel, it was it was too much. It was a lot for me. Also, the American accent I just couldn't get with. It's not that he did it wrong. It just, it was uncomfortable. And I think that was the purpose. But yeah, I really did not expect that. It's like when you hear Daniel Craig do an American accent in Tomb Raider, you're just like, no. Brandon, I love Daniel Craig. And 2001's Tomb Raider. I don't know if that's like the year. It. I like it too, but like it's a weird accent. Lara. Okay. Um, oh my gosh. Black Mirror. I said it before. WandaVision and Suspiria, baby. For some reason, there's like this inclination for, I don't even know what to, how to generalize it, but how it goes is why are the wives in this community, why are they asked to like attend a ballet class? Like, why do they have to go and learn dance numbers and uniform and order and Gemma Chan is the leader of the instruction and she has this stick that I'm expecting her to like whack them with whack them with for when they fall out of line um but it just raises the question for me is like that seems so I think typical now like I'm tired of just seeing like the perfect 
female dancer and that's how you know that she's like eloquent and elevated um it made me think of like sucker punch and like of course of of suspira as well uh but i bring up the wandavision comparison because we learned that wilde's character bunny the best friend to alice while she's been living here in victory side note all of the couples here though they are though the wives are unaware of their placement in the situation, they do have related memories. Like I think in the trailer, you may recall that they have similar backstories in terms of how they met their husbands, how their husbands proposed to them, the locations that they spent their honeymoon at. That just goes further into detail uh, during a particular dinner scene uh, with all the important characters. But that being said, Wilde's character, Bunny, is aware that she's in the simulation. She's aware that her husband is going out into the real world whenever he goes to work, going to make enough money to then come back into the simulation where they have a simulated family. Jack shares that the kids are not real in Victory and that only the husband and wives are the real quote unquote players in this world, the wives being the prisoners, I guess, except for Bunny because she's she's kind of there not against her will. Did I want the Tremors route? I think I did, Brandon. You wanted Victory to be swallowed up by a bunch of giant worms. I wanted Pew to go outside the city and her be like, oh, this is why I'm not supposed to be out here. We have, mm-hmm. um, got it, Three Mile Worms, a la Dune. I'm going to be in that movie next. Okay. Yes. All right. She's probably like driving to her next, uh, you know, the next studio over. That's where she's going to film Dune. I want to say, if we're talking about plot holes, uh, did either of you understand the significance of the plane? I'm assuming that that was just kind of like to make the simulation more real and to make them think like, oh, okay, well, what our husbands are doing has something to do with this war, whatever. Um, That was my assumption. But yeah, I think think that kind of goes into something that I feel like was a pitfall of this movie is there were a lot of things that I think I understand and I could probably try to explain, but they're not actually explained in the movie. And I think that some of that, it was like, okay, whatever. Other things, it's like, uh, I get why, even though I still love the movie, I get why this was confusing because that wasn't something that was explained very well. We kind of just have to guess as to what was happening. Getting into that third act. My God, once you get the actual reveal, it is just go, go, go to the point where they have to put a car chase action sequence in there just to keep you invested. And I just felt like the idea of you had what, an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes to deal with this. And yet all that time was just better well spent either on just menial conversations that don't actually go anywhere or building Jack and Alice's relationship with the end is kind of pointless because at the end of the day, he's kind of an ass. So it just brings together this kind of idea of what was the point of all of this? I get that Olivia Wilde and Katie Silverman think there's a point to it. And there is a lot of subjects in there, specifically around Frank. There's especially the idea of, you know, just, oh, victory being the name of the town. Like the idea that this is the end goal, the victory of it all. The idea that this is the idyllic nature that you so absolutely crave the, going back to like loki and first adventures you crave subjugation and i found that kind of angle to his character fascinating i don't think that really comes through in the movie script or in structure as well it's just the thing that i kind of felt was this roller coaster ride that i was not having fun with and by the end of it i felt well what's the point if you if that's the approach you're doing and that's the themes and ideas you're approaching that could have been explored and given breadcrumbs to way more so that we feel we're in alice's shoes by the end when that last breath in the credits comes out and we think she's gotten out, that feels more cathartic. And to me, it just didn't really land. Why are there always men in red jumpsuits? Where did they get these jumpsuits? I'd like one. I actually saw a tweet about, oh, I don't know which Spy Kids movie it is, but the- the, Oh, the the thumbs. (laughs) 
Oh, the first one. Okay. I'm a fake fan of Spy Kids, I guess. Um, I did want to say, though, to your point, Brandon, that I completely understand where you're coming from. The third act is definitely very fast. I think it made sense. I wasn't confused, but there were definitely things where I was like, I wish you had expanded on that a little bit more, um, which would have meant taking things out of the beginning because I don't necessarily want the movie to be longer. Um, But it still worked for me. I really, I was surprised. I was shocked. I... I loved that last breath that she took. I thought normally I don't like when movies end that way, but I thought that was great. Like it just really worked for me, despite some of the things that I wish that maybe they had gone a little bit more into. I mean, that's totally fair. And I think there is much more subtext than I think people are giving credit for to the movie. Like again, beyond the obvious, like the whole electroshock stuff and the idea of she has to come back and be the idyllic version of herself. And then even going into, um, um, even getting into Bunny's character, the idea of like, yeah, women being subjugated, but some of them feel like they have no other option and manipulative men are taking advantage of that fact. Again, the Jordan Peterson comparison to Apt, and I cannot believe how well that works in Chris Pine's character. Gemma Chan plays Shelly, Frank's wife. Why does Shelly stab Frank at the end? There's a sense that we never really get clear that maybe like Alice's mind is somehow, like maybe if enough people wake up, i.e. Kiki Lane's character and then Alice and then maybe so on and so forth that creates some kind of chain amongst the people involved because there's only like I think 60 or 70 people involved. That was kind of my idea of like, oh, maybe it's a hive mind and like there's some kind of break in that. It does lead to a bigger conversation though about how this movie treats women of color. Uh, Kiki Lane and Gemma Chan are both completely underutilized. Gemma Chan's moment should be an absolute hell yes moment and I felt like, okay, yeah, totally. And Kiki Lane is just played for, you know, the traumatized black person that we've seen in a million other movies. And I just felt like you could have done a lot with this and you chose not to. And it just kind of irritated me. They would never do this. But I would be interested to see, because Gemma Chan doesn't say like, you know, this is over. She's like, I'm taking over. I don't know her exact words. Which makes me wonder, is her plan to get revenge on the men who've been doing this? Is her plan to, which I guess probably wouldn't work that well because they know how to exit. So is her plan to like try to make this a utopia, but then it ends up going wrong? Like, I I just, I wonder what exactly she means by that. And I feel like I could see her character trying to do the thing that Frank does essentially, where it's like, you're trying to do something that you think is right, but it ends up going wrong and hurting a lot of people. So I thought that that was fascinating. I agree that Gemma Chan was completely underused, which is upsetting because I love her. And I want to say that she had a great performance, but she just didn't give us that much to work with, to be honest. I do want to say quickly, though, that I was surprised by how well Olivia Wilde and Florence Pugh work together on screen, especially given, given everything that's happened, every scene with the two of them in it, whether they were fighting, whether they were just being friends and talking, it just was perfect. Their chemistry was perfect. The two are tremendous performers and that you can't poke a hole through. Like the scenes work. I'm, I'm invested in the story. You come out of the movie and you go, let me remind myself that this was not a, you know, a healthy working relationship. I don't want to say the comedy is easy, but I felt like the banter was really very natural for that. What I was more impressed with going back to the party scene was when Bunny is trying to confront Alice about her hallucinations and everything. And that felt like two best friends really coming to grips with one another and trying to figure out each other on deep intrinsic levels. And I was like, that's not something you can just do. I guess that's pretty much all we can get into, you know, going into all that. But uh, rating out of 10 for me is interesting because as we talk about this more and more, there's more things that I really wanted to like about this movie and didn't. But there are also things that I think are there and that are really smart and clever in terms of a movie that, yeah, is derivative of about 10, 20 other movies, but at least is an attempt to try and make something unique and different. 
for me, I'm saying six and a half. Uh, it's solid. I would not tell anyone to completely skip it, especially, you know, all the drama and all the, you know, Olivia, all the Olivia Wilde hype has been, you know, hyping you up. Absolutely give it a shot. I think it's worth it. it you know, I'm on a big screen, it's fantastic. Again, Matthew Liberty, I'm not saying the cinematography field isn't stacked this year, but I hope he gets an Oscar nomination. But Florence Pugh is fantastic. Chris Pine is great. There's a lot of great subtext to it. It's just muddled in a story that I think undercuts a lot of its worth that doesn't really know how to pace itself. And that might be a page out of Olivia Wilde as a director's playbook, but it doesn't really derail me from my excitement at seeing any of your future projects. I would give it an eight and a half or a nine. I'm not going to lie. I I really liked this movie. Um, again, maybe part of it was that I honestly had low expectations going in because of the mixed reviews, but I really enjoyed it. I do agree there's a lot that could have been done better. For me, it still worked. Um, and I'm just really hoping that my policeman is better. Looking out for that one. Um, but yeah, so I'd say eight and a half or nine. And my rating over here on this side of the spectrum, I'm going to say pew. Phew! I'm going uh, to give that. Come on. Hey, hey, what, what can I say? What can I say? Um, I'm going to go ahead and give this movie a five and a half out of ten. While I do think that this movie was effective in presenting a mystery to you and you falling for it all because of Pew's excellent performance alongside other supporting characters who were giving it their all. I myself believed that I was in victory with Pew trying to figure out if I really was going crazy or if there was something on that hill, what is going on at the top of victory's mountain. Um, But by the time we get to the explanation of it all, it did just feel like the cookie crumbled in front of me and I didn't even get a chance to bite it. Well, I don't think that you should attend the theaters for this, I would not say it's a skip. I think if you have it available on VOD or you can rent it somehow, uh, then I think it's definitely worth the watch. Uh, like I said, if you're a fan of uh, the elements of Black Mirror, uh, if you watched WandaVision, Suspiria, you're going to get a lot of those tones and themes here. We are talking now on a re-release in theaters. Brandon and I are talking James Cameron's Avatar. Because of its re-release in theaters, we thought, what the hell? Let's watch it. Let's treat it like a release and let's review the hell out of it. So it is a two hour and 45 minute movie. I felt like I walked out of Endgame with the type of exhaustion that I had after watching that movie or even the Batman to speak to an earlier movie that was mentioned. Brandon, we're talking Avatar. Before I detail the story for those of you who aren't familiar, which I'd be very surprised. Uh, go, ahead people sh- who are. <laughs> go ahead and share with me. Um, have you seen Avatar before? What's your history with it? And then we'll kind of dive into it as we do regularly with reviews. Yeah, we're saving the biggest for last. And luckily, we don't have to wait 13 years for the sequel. We only have to wait three months because uh, Way of Water, I think, is three months away now. I forget when it's coming out. Um, but yeah, I, for me... I always knew of Avatar. I remember watching it, but I don't remember watching it in theaters. I very well might have. I just don't remember. I distinctly remember watching it home at like my grandparents, like fancy, you know, super high def television when everything would pop. And when, you know, it wasn't a 3D television, but it was a time when televisions were really trying to adjust to 3D conversions and make their screen really pop. And maybe it worked, maybe it didn't, but that's how I remember it. Let's go ahead and dive into the plot details, and then we can talk about what Avatar means to us, what the story, how it was communicated across Cameron's vision, and now what it's going to look like for its successor, for its sequel to be released this year. That's right. No pushbacks. I mean it. Don't do it this time. Don't do it. You're three months away, Cameron. You can't do it <laughs> again. It's not allowed, okay? All right. So 
we are focusing on our hero of the story is Jake Sully. Jake Sully had a twin brother who was part of a scientific program on the planet or set to travel to the planet Pandora, where he will be taking on the life of the avatar that was created for him. The avatar is set to portray the natives of the planet Pandora, the Navi, and that is the tall blue figures with the braided with the braided kind of nervous system that have those little flailing tips at the end of the braid, as well as they have the tails and they're like 10 feet tall. Okay. Um, but Jake Sully is now being placed in his brother's position because of his brother's passing. Um, that leads to the upset of his brother's, um, who would have been his brother's crew with Dr. Grace Augustine portrayed by Sigourney Weaver, as well as a fellow scientist in Norm Spellman portrayed by Joel David Moore. Um, his journey is to understand the, the livelihood of the Navi people. However, Jake Sully is actually a, he has a military background. So while he is there on the planet Pandora, he is approached by the Colonel Miles Quaritch played by Stephen Lang and the colonel asks him, hey, while you're doing your whole scientific mumbo jumbo, I want you to report back to me and tell me how we can take out this sacred tree where they live. Why? Because our head honcho, Parker Selfridge, so many names, I promise you this is an epic movie, played by Giovanni Ribisi. On Pandora, their mission is to collect unobtainium, the richest source of which is available right underneath the home of the Navi people underneath this huge tree that they call their home. And so Jake's goal is to understand the Navi people and communicate the best way for them to GTFO out of that big tree so that unobtainium can all be mined and lead to the successful commercialization of everyone back on earth because it can sell for so much. Okay. This is a, a, a familiar story of like uh, colonizing a native space or an indigenous space and just upsetting the um, indigenous populations that are there. Um, there is a very important character who I've not mentioned so far. And that is Natiri. Natiri is played by Zoe Saldana. So while Jake Sully is on his mission, on his quest to understand the Navi people, he develops a relationship and is trained to be one of the Navi by Natiri. Natiri is the next in line to be the spiritual connection to, for the Navi people with their land. And their land is entirely connected. Brandon, that was a very large synopsis for a very large picture, okay? We can talk about the budget later and like how much money this got for James Cameron and why we're getting like four sequels. Um, but if there's any characters that I did not go as in depth on that you think are prominent to the story, I invite you to do so uh, and really welcome us all to the world of Pandora. Michelle Rodriguez is in this as well as one of the pilots named Trudy Chacon, um, among others. But please, like, let's let's talk Avatar. Let's do it. What do you even say about Avatar? I it's been 13 years, and this is still a movie that has captured curiosities and captured the attention of filmgoers so much so that, you know, again, we've said the joke for years now, like, who cares about Avatar? Why are you doing four sequels? Well, now it's three months later, and as far as I can tell, it's making pretty good money at IMAX movies. So there is an attentive for, there is an attentive nature for Pandora and the world that James Cameron and his team created. I, again, like I mentioned earlier, I had seen Avatar. I remembered, you know, the talk about Avatar, the you know bashing of it all and whatever. But I, I did not remember a lot of it like concretely. I remember the broad strokes of it, obviously, but I didn't remember the intricacies. And after watching it in IMAX, like uh, you did as well, I'm kind of shocked how much I did enjoy it. 
uh, like this is a fairly enjoyable movie. Like, I, I don't know if I'd say great, but very enjoyable. And especially in theater, like, I don't know how it's possible, but these effects still look fantastic. Uh, specifically the performance capture. Like, I never found one moment at all with the performance capture, except maybe in the hospital room. And that is maybe the only time. But other than that, the facial expressions are there. The eyes are there. That you know, the nervous system, as you mentioned, was there. Everything is there to make these, you know, these ten foot tall Navi feel as lifelike and real and lived in as possible. To the point where there's a freaking sex scene, it doesn't feel out of place. But like, there's a sense of just lived in nature about the movie that, if nothing else, and I do have criticism about the movie, if nothing else, I gotta praise Cameron for that. And it makes me question as to what. Sam Worthington has been up to because other than filming those Avatar sequels, I mean, this is in 2009, which we see him appear again in Terminator Salvation, Clash of the Titans as the lead. And then he kind of fell. So I, I'm curious as to what kind of trajectory his his career has had. Sam Worthington at the time, and credit to him, is a great story. Like where like he was living out of his car. He was like living pictures of paycheck. And then James Cameron calls him and was like, hey, I saw you in this one like random thing and I want to put you in Avatar. Notably, turning down Matt Damon, who wanted 10% of the profits of box office, which would have been a major step in his you know, financial direction, but whatever. But Sam Worthington, there was an idea at the time, even somewhat nowadays, that like he wasn't a leading man. Like He was being thrown into too much too fast between that and Terminator and Crush Titans, and he was too much too fast. And then to me, he did Cake. And then he's in Hacksaw Ridge. And then he's in all of these like smaller, he's in Everest. Like he's in all of these like smaller kind of popping up supporting roles. And he really does develop as a really great actor. And here you kind of tell why, because he's given the weight of the, at the time, the biggest fictional world in the modern day on his shoulders. And he makes some of it work. He doesn't make all of it work, but he makes enough of it work to the point where Jake is, you care about him to a degree. He's, the narrating gets a bit jarring, but like you can tell that's part of his, you know, shtick and the idea of him coming back to the light that he so clearly wants. So like, yeah, Sam Worthington has not been up to a ton, but I think I find it fascinating given his, recent supporting roles seeing him put into like the lead poster child of you know idolization like this and if he remains the lead in avatar 2 which i'm assuming he will what what's going to happen to him in hollywood for the next several years as we receive those movies i didn't mention one person but now that i see the name i am just i have to it is laz alonso as sute sute is the yeah. next in line for the like the general of the navi and that is portrayed by Laz Alonso, as I say, who is M.M. from The Boys. Are you kidding me? Oh, how, yeah. how, how could I miss that? Um, but back to the world of Avatar, back to the Navi people. Watching this film, for one, like sidebar, I've heard a lot of like Jurassic Park noises. I could have sworn I heard a T-Rex and I've always heard Velociraptors, Velociraptors from those horse-like creatures. Um, the world of Pandora is so inviting it's so new i remember the first time i've seen this being in uh, again 3d and i watched it last night in 3d when jake is first walking around with natiri on the world of pandora touching all of the like illuminating by bi biological life of the planet it's it's all just so beautiful it's all so unique i think to this world that it 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 paints the question of what else is on Pandora? And I'm so excited to learn very soon. Um, this world isn't, I can't, can you call this world original? I, the world itself, yes. Okay. Um, I am just so intrigued by what else Pandora has to offer. Um, I loved the story of Jake as a, as just a 
warrior with this, I can't call it burden, but with an opportunity to get a former life back with the promise of getting, he is um, a paraplegic. So he can't, he does not have um, control over his legs and he's promised to have like surgery that will repair that spinal surgery by the Colonel if he is successful in his mission. And he of course betrays that trust because he falls for the Natiri and the Navi people and becomes one of them. And so his commitment to them is a whole lot stronger to his former life on earth, which I find um, just entertaining, um, amazing to watch. And I, I do like his narrating pieces. I think that it, it helps the audience understand this is a, like, this isn't a intellectual scientist like his colleagues. This is a soldier who doesn't understand why he would be important until his emotions start to get the better of him, his heart overall. Um, this is, it was awesome to be behind Jake Sully again. So I really appreciated that. What pieces of Pandora did you feel weren't necessary to explore or even what pieces of the, of Jake as a, you know, as a man, not as a Navi person, did you feel were not entirely important for the story? I'm not exactly sure. I think you could cut down some of the scientist stuff, like, because really, I wanted more explanation of the science. For one thing, we never get an explanation into like, oh, when the first avatars came here, like, hi, I'm a human in a Navi body. Oh my God, what the hell? Like, we never get an explanation to what that interaction kind of is, which would be terrifying. Yes, we get a mention from Sute, I believe, where he just, he calls him out. He says, this is not a member of the Navi. This is a demon in another body. So there's clearly, they have perceptions into who these avatar um, avatar are, but we, we only get a line from them. You know, we don't get to get the understanding overall of how the Navi react to these, these, these new inhabitants to their planet. Oh, no, th that's what I meant, which is the idea of like, someone had to initially tell them that like, we're humans in bodies that look like you and how though, and how the Navi did not freak out, which I always wanted to know the optics of that. And I find it weird. They never go into it. Um, Brandon. Can you imagine we're hanging out as humans as we do? That's human, wa human walks in. Hey, I'm actually an alien, but I've crafted now a vehicle for me to look like you so I can talk like you and act like you, but I'm not one of you. But treat me as one of you and eventually, uh... <laughs> eventually, um, you know, have one of your own fall for me and we will become a family. Like, what kind of horror is that? It's just, it's one of the things that I think Cameron is not really concerned with. And as you get through the movie, the idea of like subtlety or complexity in the characters, it kind of starts to fall away because for one thing, you're so enraptured by the good versus evil stakes of it. I mean, we didn't go into it, but like Stephen Lang and Giovanni Ribisi are despicable in this movie. Every moment of them is just so drenched in like diabolical plotting. But at the same time, all the good stuff is clearly there. Like you don't mention Sigourney Weaver. She is a great character in this. I really like the idea of her kind of coming to terms with her own curiosity, but also utilizing that to help people who are less, uh, who are more vulnerable than her. And it kind of brings together this idea of like the battle of good versus evil and what that means. And when we do get that battle, it is spectacular. But I like the idea that it goes into that, but it unfortunately does sacrifice a lot of nuances results. And that means that 13 years later, it does feel a bit thin. I could call this movie cliche. Oh, it's I definitely could. cliche. Uh-huh. I remember there was an English teacher who was speaking on this and was like, oh, that movie's pretty much... Um, I mean, there was the Pocahontas reference, but there was another one. With wolves, Fern Gully. There is just so many stories like this, but it wasn't oh, set. There's even hints of it in The Woman King. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. But there's the pinnacle moment for me, I think, is when the Navi people lose their home, when they lose home tree. That that for me, there's the same emotional weight, if not more, than than um Ewa, which is their spiritual deity. Um that connects really all life on Pandora, or at least the life that the Navi interact with. Because again, this is a whole planet. We do not even know like what exists beyond the Navi and their neighboring tribes who gather together for that final fight. But um, yes, that final moment in the battle where Ewa really does have like the surrounding native, not native, the surrounding uh, animals, creatures, life, help defend the navi people that's so powerful but man was the was the tragedy of them losing home tree natiri losing um is her father yeah those those are her parents yes yeah those are her parents okay natiri losing her father it's just it, it all feels like the same kind of blow that i received when i had watched this movie for the first time and for cameron to do that i mean yes it was 10 30 and maybe my emotional capacity <laughs> emotional battery was running a little low so I, it was i was susceptible to feeling um but this movie is absolutely powerful in its messages it's a thing you were tying into earlier which is the thing of like jake going around and exploring pandora and the idea of the unknown becoming not only known, but comfortable and feasible and familial. And by that point, we have grown so attached to the Pandoran wildlife and the, uh, and the Navi and like their whole structure of how everything is connected and everything works together that when that home tree scene happens, it's not only obviously physically brutal, it becomes emotionally deteriorating as well. And again, while you could argue that it's you know a little cliche and a little over the top, it clearly works. It clearly works. I like the, um, I'm going to use my English, I'm going to use my English classes here. I like the archetypes that they throw in here. You know what I mean? Like the chosen one with Awa kind of spotlighting Jake as the, as their, not, I can't say savior, but as their hero because of the petals that fall from, uh, I forget the name of the tree, but there's seeds that come and they surround Jake. And that moment too, I just, oh. And then the fact that the sequels were filmed underwater, right? Or something like that. Like they were kind of filmed underwater. Um, I can only expect further cinematic moments to be shared with us in this world. Um, I don't expect performances to falter. I expect them to still come and deliver like defining moments for Zoe Saldana, um, Sam Worthington with however many projects he's attached to. I wonder if any of these are going to be prequels. I mean, I'm sure there's five, 11 of them coming soon, <laughs> but that yeah. Could be an idea actually. I, I haven't thought of that, but that'd be great. I do want to quickly mention uh, Maro Tior who won an Academy Award for this shoots the hell out of this thing in terms of cinematography. The editing, the editing never really feels too jarring. It always feels like even during the flying sequences, like we're always, right there in the midst of the characters and then this world and everything is still connected in that. And of course, the late James Horner who composed maybe one of his best scores. I just went back and listened to it a couple days ago and it's truly tremendous what he's able to do with just a lot of different devices. There's a couple of like weird electronic flourishes in there that I really like. Um, but yeah, just again, I know we keep praising the technical angle of it. That's how it's kind of meant to be viewed. If you look at it as purely literal, yeah, it doesn't really work. But if you give it a little bit more like spiritual insight just as a viewer, you'll get a lot out of it. Brandon, if you're ready, I am ready to move on to ratings. Putting a number, this is so weird because on some level, it's not that great. And on another level, it's pretty damn great. I think I will go about as middling an eight out of 10 as I can. Just because again, how if I saw this at home, I'd probably give it a lower score. And if any of you can't get out to you know see in theaters, I get it. But please, if you can, it's just really worth it. And 
Visually, it's stunning. Aesthetically, it's pleasing to the eye and super interesting and never boring. The characters, yeah, are, as Noah said, they're archetypes, but they're good archetypes and they have a bit more depth to them even years later than you might think. Um, the movie is groundbreaking for a lot of reasons. It might be overrated for a lot of reasons, but it is never boring. And I never found myself going, oh, I have to watch Avatar again. It was a feeling of, oh, I get to watch Avatar again. And that's what I think James Cameron wanted. And how can you say that for a three-hour movie? It's just not that easy of a, really of a task to tackle. But uh, for this pod, for you listeners, for you, Brandon King, I was down for it. And for you, James Cameron, I mean, I will laugh about you all the time. I will too. For, for these sequels being pushed crazily back and back, back and back. But re-experiencing Avatar in theaters felt like us truthfully like a magical um it was a magical experience uh, being the audience again i was part of a group of friends one of which had never even seen avatar so i was like are you kidding like this no like you you have to see this like it's it's not a movie you just pass up on because you go man like it's just about blue people no no it is not uh he walked out and he had nothing but praises to sing for it so i feel the same way having watched it now However, many years later, this is a nine out of 10 for me. I only have high expectations for what will come from the Navi people and from the world of Pandora in the sequels. But yeah, nine out of 10 for me, this was absolutely amazing. I will watch Avatar again and again and again, but not back to back. Okay. This is three hours. Like I can't do that. What do you, what do you think I'm doing all day? Huh? Okay. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, we do have lives. <laughs> And that'll do it for episode 36 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in. While we've got you here, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, RSS feed, go follow us there, leave us a like, and leave us a follow on those, uh, as well as a rating. It helps us boost the algorithm and gets us to other audiences. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod, as well as our TikTok page at Plot Devices Podcast. I want to thank our special guest for today, Danielle Bokenkamp. Danielle, I know you don't have a ton to plug, but is there anything that you've been watching, reading, uh, just getting generally excited about? Well, I've been watching The Tudors, which is a huge throwback that came out in like 2007 or something. But I've been watching that, also The Bachelorette and Bachelor in Paradise. So that's what I've been doing. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun, as always. Tudors. Is that Jonathan Reese Majors or is that Henry Cavill? Which one is yeah. that? Yeah, Henry Cavill's in it, too. Oh, they both are? I didn't know he was British. What? Okay, Tudors. No, I, I just know the title, but if you're enjoying it, that's a wreck in my book. So I'll have to check it out. And of course, my co-host Noah Guzman, who apparently does not know about the tutors. Noah, what do you know about? What is your uh, social media feeds and what are you uh, watching and enjoying right now? You can follow me at Noah's Plotting on Twitter. Uh, these days, what am I doing? Listening to the Super Freaky Girl remix by Nicki Minaj. Uh, but outside of that, uh, not busying myself with too much else. And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the King 45 That's Twitter and Instagram at the King 45 Follow my band at Cablebox Music at Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. Our debut single, Wish, is out on all audio platforms right now if you want to check that out. Follow Noah and I's work on ASU Odyssey. Just search our names on ASU Odyssey as well. And once again, all the social media links and everything you just heard will be in the description below. So for that being said, for episode 36 of Plot Devices, from Danielle Buckingham, from Noah Guzman, and from myself, Brandon King, this has been Plot Devices episode 36. I'll catch you guys next time.